waiting for the space to fill up. Uh, the Ambassador Polyamsky will be here, obviously, in about five minutes, give or take. Um, I This won't be, this will be very short. He only has about 30 to 45 minutes with us. Um, and But we will close this space and then hold a discussion space immediately following if there's interest. Um, the space is recorded, just so you guys know, but the the discussion space after this will not be recorded. Uh, ben and Tyler, if you guys want to discuss anything before he gets into the room, just to break the awkward silence. <laughs> I, I've just been reading through stuff and, and you know, boning up on, on current events just to try and make sure that uh, the questions I ask are relevant if I get to ask them, that is. <laughs> I, ex I imagine there's going to be a lot of people who are interested in asking questions. I have a big pool, but it seems like people kind of ask the same types of questions. So I'm hoping that we'll ask stuff broadly enough that like a lot of people's answer, like questions get answered. Should we go over it with um, that any questions that we cannot ask uh, or any topics that we should not discuss? He didn't say any, but I think that we might not want to get into too much, like, very sensitive information, like questions about the most recent drone strikes at the airfield. I highly doubt he can even talk about that. Right, of course. Okay. But also... Yeah, I mean, he might... He if uh, the listeners have any uh, questions or comments, put them in the the chat in the comment section of the space, and we'll try to pack in as much as we can. I don't personally have that many questions because I can ask questions whenever I want. So this is mostly for you guys and your questions. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm hoping to pack in as much as I can. Perfect. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this space all week long, um, thinking about it. Uh, you know, it's interesting. He he actually came on to a space that I was on a few months ago and uh, very articulate, very forthcoming, answered everybody's questions. Uh, seems to be a really nice, nice man. I've been scheduling this for eight months. <laughs> I think we've been scheduling this for eight months conversations for eight months and uh finally it just did it well i imagine he's very busy and, and hard to get a hold of for something like this I sent him the link, um, so maybe any minute now. It's been uh, kind of quiet the last few days um, as far as news from certain areas are concerned. Uh, very interesting develop developments in Af Africa, however. I, I am really surprised at how many different countries are rising up to say enough is enough. And I was shocked to see the bags of cash in the president of Gabon's uh, house being taken out. That was amazing to me. Like, oh my gosh, how does that happen? I'm quite, I'm quite leery of this coup in whatever you want to call it, this turnover in Gabon it just feels weird and doesn't feel as authentic as Niger or Burkina Faso so yeah I've very much the same for me I have read some things that make me think uh, that it's possible that this was a U.S. backed coup um, so for me it looks like it might be an attempt for uh, the U.S. to try and step in and, and maybe take away some territory 
territorial um, influence from France. I'm I'm not sure, but that's what it feels like for me right now. It also feels that you what U.S. is doing is that they're trying to create a lot more conflict within the African regions. So perhaps they can go in, NATO can go in, France and U.S. can go in and just and start another war like like we always do. I think also we need to remember that in the case of uh, Gabon, if you look at its economic record, as I tweeted a few days ago, since uh, the 1970s, it's been on a pretty firm downward trajectory and uh, dominated by a one family oligarchy. But since they haven't even managed to maintain the standards that they reached in the mid 70s, well, um, I think that there's a lot of rather uh, patience is wearing rather thin. So um, I think that it's right to be wary, but I also think that you need to remember that uh, there are a lot of deficiencies, but our guest of honor has arrived. Yay, let's go. I can't see him. Um, there we go. There we go. I've got him. Welcome, sir. Welcome to the to our humble space. Yes, it's an honor for How me. Are... Thank you. How do you hear me? <laughs> we can hear you just fine. You sound great. <laughs> How are you today? Happy not, Friday. Not bad. Thank you. Happy Friday to you. It's a long weekend ahead. Oh, that's right. It is. So um, I do want to get started because I know you're kind of strapped for time and I don't want to monopolize it. So um, if you could, just for some of our listeners, maybe do a really short recap on what led to the special military operation, but not from a war perspective, um, more from diplomatic means that what were used and which organizations and the lack of response and interest that they met? Yes, yeah, sure. Sure, I'm very pleased uh, to do so. I think that uh, more and more people nowadays, when they an analyze uh, the situation, the facts, uh, they understand that the history uh, with uh, Ukraine, with the Ukrainian crisis, uh, hasn't started on the 24th of February uh, of uh, 2022. Actually, uh, there were different stages of uh, this crisis. Uh, the most acute one started uh, in 2014, when there was this unconstitutional uh, coup d'etat, uh, which we call Maidan coup d'etat, promoted by the U.S. and its uh, allies in Kiev. And all of a sudden, uh, the uh, authorities uh, were monopolized, the, the power structures were monopolized by, uh, the, by those uh, who are radical and nationalist and Russophobic. And that's why uh, they started to conduct uh, policies uh, that actually were not supported uh, with, uh, by, by the population in the east and in the south. And to such to certain extent, this population started to resist. Uh, you know that there were uh, terrible events in uh, Odessa in uh, May 2014, when about 50 uh, peaceful uh, protesters were burnt alive uh, in, in the House of uh, Trade Unions. There were clashes in, in Mariupol, uh, there were clashes elsewhere, but the most, uh, uh, the most uh, serious resi resistance uh, was uh, noticed in, in uh, Donetsk and Lugansk uh, regions, which uh, later became Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic. So uh, these uh, events, these whole problems of Ukraine that Ukraine is facing right now, they date back at least to that moment. Uh, but uh, to be more precise and to be more uh, strict, uh, we need to, to go back even before that, uh, when the nationalist agenda started to be introduced uh, in Ukraine, when people who immigrated uh, after, after the Second World War and their descendants uh, came back to Ukraine with the nationalist ideology and they started to promote uh, the values uh, honoring those uh, who were Hitler's collaborators. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, those who were uh, liberating Ukraine from fascism uh, 
were not were no longer worshipped in uh, in Western Ukraine, and instead of them, such people as uh, as Bandera and Shuhevich and others who were collaborating with Hitler and who were perpetrators of Holocaust started to be worshipped, and Bandera became the national hero uh, of Ukraine. That were that were the first, I would say. The, the first signs of the uh, of the looming crisis and uh, again it became quite acute in in 2014 the first attempt uh, was made in 2004 when there was this orange revolution but then the majority of population did not support uh, these uh, governments and these uh, leaders imposed by the west and the west uh, had to make a pause so uh, the current ukraine is a, is a total uh, geopolitical uh, project of the West. Uh, its only aim is uh, to be a tool of weakening Russia, of promoting Western geopolitical interests, uh, and uh, the West absolutely doesn't care about Ukraine, about Ukrainians. I think that's quite obvious right now, and more and more people are asking themselves the question, what is the end game for Ukraine uh, in this uh, uh, Western equation uh, that they are now uh, trying to solve? You mentioned international organizations. I would say that uh, maybe I would I should single out, uh, of course, European Union, uh, which uh, uh, signed association agreement uh, with Ukraine uh, in uh, 2014. And in 2013, uh, the Ukrainian leadership at this moment, uh, the Yanukovych government, they uh, declined to sign to sign this agreement. They did not reject it, but they said that they needed more time to calculate all the benefits, all the pro and cons of this agreement, because uh, many people understood that implementation of this agreement uh, would jeopardize uh, its uh, uh, Ukraine's relations and ties uh, with Russia. So uh, EU played a major role in this uh, in this crisis, in provoking this crisis. Uh, this uh, association agreement is is the much deeper than the free trade agreement that EU has with uh, several other countries. It's an association agreement. Uh, it requires a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, things from, from Ukraine. Uh, of course, one needs to, to mention NATO because uh, the issue of Ukrainian membership of NATO was very contentious uh, from quite a lot of, for quite a long time. And I think we made it absolutely clear in 2007 that uh, when when president putin was speaking in munich we made it absolutely clear that uh, the uh, ukraine joining nato is absolutely a red line for us and uh, as you know it's not only about ukraine we were consistently for quite a long time opposing uh, the extension uh, expansion of nato because this is an alliance of the cold war uh, and uh, it was absolutely not part of the deal, part of the agreement uh, between Soviet leaders and Western leaders at the beginning of the 90s that the uh, block of NATO would survive and uh, would expand further. So it's a breach of uh, all the understandings and all the agreements. Uh, and uh, of course, the uh, direct Casus uh, Belli that was uh, actually uh, that happened uh, in 2022 was this uh, desire of NATO to include Ukraine. Uh, we tried to avert this crisis. Uh, we made uh, several attempts. We made several proposals on how to deal with this situation. Uh, our main priority was uh, the uh, respect for the rights of Russian-speaking population in the East and in the West, uh, because Kiev regime started a war against its own citizens in uh, 2014. Uh, and uh, our whole idea of our special means operation was to stop this war and to stop the uh, shelling of uh, peaceful uh, cities and towns of, uh, of women and elderly in, in the east of Ukraine. Uh, so uh, we, uh, that, that was our main aim. And uh, you know that Minsk agreements uh, were specifically designed to lead us uh, to this aim. Uh, their end game was uh, return of these uh, regions uh, to Ukrainian uh, rule, but with a big degree of sovereignty and autonomy, especially for Russian language and uh, in uh, matters concerning the history of the Second World War. But Ukraine and its Western sponsors rejected these agreements. Uh, they did it absolutely distinctly in 2022 
on the eve of our special military operation. And this was also one of the reasons why we had to start it. And uh, I need also to mention in this connection, the third organization, which also played uh, quite a negative role, it's uh, OECE, because OECE was monitoring the implementation of Minsk agreements. But uh, in fact, as we know now, it was not only not doing its job, but it was uh, also uh, playing into the hand of uh, Kiev regime, uh, providing it with information about about uh, about rebels in uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, which was absolutely not part of its mandate. But now we have the uh, the documents and the facts that would uh, that would uh, show us that uh, OEC uh, special monitoring mission was part of a problem and not part of a solution. So that's in a nutshell. How can I sum up uh, our uh, road to where we are right now? And I am absolutely at your disposal to answer further questions. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thank you for that opening. You work as Deputy Ambassador in the United Nations. How would you say the UN General Assembly and Security Council have changed, if at all, since the start of the special military operation? Uh, I can tell you that at the beginning, uh, of course, uh, no one was prepared for such a development of the events uh, because it all started quite quickly and uh, people were still hoping that there will be a diplomatic uh, solution to all the contradictions that were becoming more and more acute. So uh, if we travel back to uh, February 2022, February, March, April, I think that a lot of uh, a lot of countries, a lot of uh, countries from global south were disoriented and they, they didn't know what was happening and uh, uh, Western countries were very active in uh, promoting anti-Russian narrative, uh, black and white narrative that uh, Russia is bad and the West is good and that they are defending Ukraine and, the, and that the Ukrainian regime is a victim of Russian aggression and all these things. And they managed to mobilize uh, support from uh, about two-thirds of the members of the General Assembly and uh, they managed to take uh, several decisions uh, within the framework of a special session uh, that was called uh, after, after the beginning of our special military operation. Uh, Security Council, it's a different story because uh, they, it is uh, dominated by Western countries and that's one of the reasons why uh, we are promoting the issue of reform of Security Council because it doesn't represent the, the moods uh, in the world and uh, the position of most countries of the world. But uh, both in this General Assembly and Security Council, most visibly in the General Assembly, the support for Western narrative uh, on Ukraine is, is waning um, and it's more and more clear that this trend is dominating. A lot of countries just don't want to blindly support uh, Western countries who are not only uh, doing nothing to, to stop uh, the military activities in Ukraine, but they are uh, beefing up uh, Kyiv regime uh, with uh, arms and ammunitions and uh, sending mercenaries there and providing it with military uh, data clearly becoming uh, part of the conflict uh, just not uh, directly uh, having a war with russia but rather a proxy war so a lot of countries now understand the realities and they understand that uh, the policies of the western countries uh, led us to this crisis to the hot stage of this crisis and it's of course uh, the finding a solution also needs uh, some kind of efforts uh, from uh, from Western countries, which they don't want to deploy. And that's uh, the situation uh, as seen by many of our partners. And it is uh, more and more difficult for uh, Ukraine and its Western uh, backers uh, to mobilize support in the General Assembly or elsewhere for anti-Russian initiatives, uh, especially when it was um, uh, told to the world that uh, the peace in Ukraine was within reach uh, more than a year ago in March, when there was a peaceful plan uh, which was uh, approved uh, by Ukraine, uh, by Ukrainian negotiators. And uh, the Ukrainian authorities were ready to agree on this plan, and this plan would uh, keep Ukraine as it is, uh, with uh, several conditions, with the guarantees for the Russian-speaking population and with the uh, issue of demilitarization of Ukraine, denazification of Ukraine, and not 
and Ukraine becoming a neutral country not joining NATO. So all these principles were supported uh, by Ukrainian government, but, but, but then some Western countries, namely the United Kingdom and United States, uh, stepped in and they um, convinced Zelensky regime that uh, with the help of the West, with the help of Western uh, armaments, uh, Ukraine is capable of defeating Russia. And that was a tragic uh, mistake for, uh, for Ukraine, for Kyiv regime. And now we are seeing uh, what we're seeing on the battlefield is absolutely showing that Ukraine is um, holding out only because of uh, Western supplies. It has uh, squandered several armies of its own. And uh, the, the military situation is very bad for Ukraine. And uh, Western countries don't know what to do, how to help Ukraine to survive and to um, uh, kind of uh, make more problems and headaches for Russia. So from the military point of view, the uh, situation on the battlefield is is not uh, absolutely not in the benefit of Ukraine uh, right now. So, uh, and also people in my, my our colleagues in General Assembly and in the, in the United Nations, they also see this trend. They understand that uh, the, uh, the warmongers, the Western warmongers are the ones who are responsible for, for this crisis. And it's not very easy to convince them uh, into into anti-Russian initiatives in the United Nations, and that make that makes our Western country, Western counterparts uh, quite mad, and uh, they feel that they are a little bit isolated. So any any anti-Russian initiative now enjoys uh, something about uh, 60, 65, 70 maximum uh, backers, uh, mostly from Western countries and their closest allies but the majority of the members of the general assembly they are reluctant to support uh, such anti-russian moves because the situation is much more complex uh, than the western countries try to present it to be thank you so much for your answer anna did you want to go and ask i did thank you um dimitri it's a pleasure to meet you um i had a very, I had a question. Uh, recently, Tucker Carlson um, had an interview, and he said something extremely, extremely important. Uh, I think for all of us, he said that he believes that the United States and Russia will be in hot war in the next year or so. What are your thoughts on this? What are your feelings on this? Um, you know, what what is what is Russian government thinks about this type of possibility? Um, and how scary is this to possibly have two major nuclear powers to go to go to war with each other? Thank you. Well, thank you, Anna, for this question. It's not uh, up to us uh, to to weigh the probability of this scenario. We have been warning uh, repeatedly and consistently that the situation is quite dangerous and there is a big risk of direct uh, clash uh, between. Russia and NATO. Actually, NATO is very much involved uh, in, uh, in what's happening in Ukraine. It's providing with satellite uh, intelligence data, uh, with uh, other means. Uh, of course, it, prov it provides uh, ammunition, uh, arms, uh, everything, but maybe manpower. But we don't know for sure because there are a lot of a lot of indications that there are some kind of instructors and mercenaries, and uh, some people are. Uh, very mysteriously declared dead uh, back home in mean, generals and officers uh, from NATO. So this is all very suspicious. We can't exclude that they participate in some kind of activities uh, activities in Ukraine. So uh, of course the danger is very is very big. Uh, and uh, I mentioned that militarily the situation is very bad for Kiev regime, and everyone understands that its only lifeline is. Uh, is Western support. So Western support is also waning a little bit. And I think that uh, in the United States, a lot of people uh, as elsewhere start to realize that uh, Kyiv regime is losing. And there are a lot of hawks in, uh, in, in Washington uh, that, uh, of course, wouldn't like uh, to have this scenario. And, and we don't know what is uh, what, what they can think of uh, to keep uh, Kyiv regime alive and not to see uh, their geopolitical plans vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia to go bankrupt. I think that was that's what Tucker was mentioning. He was speaking hypothetically. Uh, we don't have crystal ball uh, in our hands, so everything can happen. Uh, nothing is uh, excluded uh, when there is such a close uh, military 
uh, clash, uh, even if a proxy clash uh, between NATO and, and Russia. So you never know uh, what will happen at the next stage. And of course, uh, this is a very dangerous situation. Uh, and uh, I, I really don't think that I should comment more, comment more on this because this would be a mere speculation. But again, I, I would say that uh, the danger of uh, direct clash is always there. It's not our choice. It's the choice of NATO. Uh, which can at, at any moment uh, stop uh, supporting Kiev regime, and then uh, I think the Cold War will be over quite soon. And a lot of, a lot of uh, analytics and specialists, uh, analysts and specialists, uh, including I think Tucker Carlson, were repeatedly saying that this is the scenario that would follow uh, if uh, if Kiev regime uh, all of a sudden uh, will not have uh, Western support. Thank you for that. Go ahead, Tyler. It's a pleasure to have you here, sir. Thank you very much for answering our questions. Um, so my question is this. Um, there's been a lot of talk over the last year about red lines being crossed. And uh, recently there was that drone attack and there was some spe speculation around the fact that it may have been initially, uh, you know, launched via Estonia and then Later on, uh, it was said that it was possible that the uh, UAVs actually just flew through Estonian territory. Um, so f as far as a response uh, from you at the UN, would you be discussing, um, you know, the red lines being crossed and, and, and the possibility of reprisals? Uh, where do you go in, in this sort of situation? Well, uh Thank you, Tyler, for the question. I think that all the red lines have already been crossed repeatedly, and we indicated this. Uh, so it's very hard to see uh, what crimes uh, NATO hasn't committed uh, in their in their futile attempts to bring strategic defeat uh, to Russia. I'm not aware of uh, real trajectory of these drones. I think there are people in my country who are specialists and who are uh, earning money for this, uh, who analyze this data, and maybe they will come with certain uh, conclusions about this. I know that there are uh, multiple drone attacks. There are attacks uh, all over Russian territory. There are a lot of uh, indications about this uh, every day. And this is a serious factor, but this is not a military response, I would say. Everybody understands that from the military point of view, all these attacks, uh, the vast majority of which are intercepted and prevented, all these attacks are not meaningful in terms of uh, military strategy. It's the only, the only um, task of these attacks uh, would be uh, to uh, kind of deflect uh, attention of uh, Ukrainians uh, from very catastrophic situation in the uh, in the front on the front line, uh, because Ukraine is clearly losing, and the Kiev regime is uh, willing to show that it is capable of inflicting certain damage uh, to Russia. There is, of course, damage and there are explosions, uh, but this is very limited. And we are also learning lessons, and now we are more and more capable every day of uh, uh, of countering. Uh, these attacks, uh, but this, uh, all these attacks, I would say this is kind of a uh, very terrorist uh, pattern uh, of uh, Kiev regime, uh, because uh, uh, we we repeatedly uh, said in the in the UN uh, in the Security Council that Russia is uh, is making uh, high precision uh, strikes uh, on the objects that are linked to the military potential military capacities of the Kiev regime. It can be energy infrastructure or logistical infrastructure, but uh, it's quite clear from the, uh, from the news, from the videos that there are in the internet that Russian strikes are high with, uh, made with high precision, high precision weapons, and they are not targeting civilians. So the civilians casualties that happen they uh, happen because of the work of uh, Ukrainian anti-missile and anti-air anti-missile defense, uh, because it's obsolete, uh, because it's uh, placed in the residential areas uh, against uh, in, against and in full breach of international humanitarian law. So uh, it's because of the either, either missiles are deflected by the work of this uh, air defense, or which happens 
most uh, most frequently, as it happened in Odessa recently uh, with the cathedral, for example, it's the uh, uh, missiles of air defense simply miss the target and they fall in residential areas. If they were situated on the outskirts, then the uh, the consequences would have been absolutely different. <clears throat> if you read Ukrainian or Russian, and uh, you will take an effort to uh, to study Ukrainian uh, telegram channels or news channels, you will see that there are a lot of warnings, even from the Ukrainians themselves, uh, which clearly show that Ukrainians are not um, fearful of Russian attacks. They are fearful of their own uh, air defense, which inflicts all this uh, damage uh, to, inf to uh, civilian infrastructure and which kills uh, civilians. So they know that Russia is not after civilians. Now, Russia is not uh, behaving in the way the Ukrainian regime is behaving, because when Ukrainian regime is, uh, uh, is, is firing in Donetsk and Lugansk and now in, in, in Russia, in Russian territory, uh, in the main, mainland Russia, it targets civilians specifically. It uses cluster munitions to target civilians in Donetsk and Lugansk. And this is absolutely different. This is clearly uh, terrorist, uh, terrorist motivations uh, from the outset. There are terrorist attacks against, uh, against non-military infrastructure like the uh, bridge to, to Crimea, which is not used for, uh, for military deliveries. And everybody knows this. So uh the and the way it is these attacks are being committed it's very much it very much resembles the tactics of islamic terrorists uh, because as you might know the driver of the lorry who carried the uh, explosives uh, during the first attack against crimea bridge uh, was not aware that he was uh, transporting something explosive so he was he was used uh, without himself knowing this is a very terrorist tactics uh, and that is the difference uh, between our military strategy, our military activities, and the terrorist activities of, of Kiev regime. And we also try to make it absolutely clear in the United Nations. Thank you. Go ahead, Ben. Hi, Ambassador. Thank you for joining us. I have a few questions if there's time. Uh, feel free to keep your answers short. My first question is regarding Nicaragua. I'm an anti-imperialist journalist who's lived here for two years, and I know that Nicaragua has been one of the most vocal supporters of Russia and the situation in Ukraine. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate sort of uh, how you see the relationship developing with Nicaragua. One of the biggest issues I've experienced and seen people experience since living here is energy prices. I know a while back there was discussion of potentially something happening in that area. So if you could elaborate on that, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Well, Nicaragua is uh, clearly one of our best uh, friends and allies uh, in the world and in the region specifically. I'm not uh, an expert on bilateral relations. I'm dealing with multilateral uh, setting here in the United Nations. But I can tell you that we interact very closely in the United Nations. Uh, we are uh, members of the uh, so-called uh, Group of the Friends of the United Nations Charter together with Nicaragua and some other allies, which is becoming more and more influential in the UN. So we are defending of principles of uh, international law, uh, which shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be uh, confused uh, uh, with the uh, principles of rules-based international order, which is the order created by Western countries trying to force everyone to uh, implement what they are planning and, that, and what they are doing. So Nicaragua is, is very uh, vocal here. Uh, Nicaragua is an important member of, uh, of uh, in international relations, uh, in, uh, very vocal player and very visible player. And uh, I think that our uh, relations with this country are becoming more and more close. Uh, I heard about uh, rec recent exchanges that would uh, make our relations uh, even more visible and uh, fruitful, both for Nicaragua and for Russia. But I clearly don't have uh, details at my disposal to, to be more precise on this. Sure. And, you know, from my experience, I see Russia's presence uh, very, very much welcome amongst the population in Nicaragua. So my next question is that the United 
the United States is uh, clearly failing in Ukraine and tensions are extremely high in West Africa right now. Are you worried about the potential of a hot war breaking out? And if so, do you believe that the U.S. may attempt to pivot from Ukraine to Nicaragua, uh, rather to West Africa or Africa in general, in an attempt to preserve their hegemony and save face? It's very difficult for me to to predict uh, the behavior of the United States. Uh, I think there are a lot of uh, re regions and situations in the world where potential uh, U.S. actions can bring us uh, to a hot conflict, uh, both between Russia and, and U.S. or between China and U.S. And uh, U.S. is uh, war is, is is a known warmonger for for many many years. So uh, situation in, in West Africa, I don't think that there are direct uh, clashes and direct uh, interaction of forces uh, between between Russia and the uh, United States there. Uh, as to my knowledge, I don't know about any Russian uh, regular forces there in these countries. I know that there, there are rumors about some uh, private military companies uh, which are being chosen by African countries. Uh, but there are situations uh, when uh, Western uh, private military companies are also chosen by certain certain governments. So I wouldn't uh, make uh, the same comparison uh, between uh, what's happening in Ukraine, where uh, NATO is uh, trying to to prop up uh, the Ukrainian army uh, with everything they can, including with specialists and instructors uh, and uh, armaments, and West Africa, where there are there is the situation of, uh, if I can say so, of, uh, of African Spring, when a lot of uh, African governments are realizing that uh, they need to defend their own interests and pursue more independent uh, policy uh, in the world. Um, and uh, this is, of course, very uh, disappointing for, for Western governments uh, who want to maintain their uh, control of these regions, but I think this is an objective trend and it's hard to really to block this trend and it's up to African countries and uh, peoples to, to choose their future. We are very much supportive of this uh, and we have always been so even at the, since the time of the Soviet Union and I think that they remember our support. So same about people uh, elsewhere in the world, uh, we would always support countries who are not uh, afraid of uh, promoting their own values and their own priorities um, in Africa or elsewhere. And I think that's, all, that's also one thing that the West doesn't like about, about Russia. Yeah, it certainly seems like the history of Russia's efforts in Africa is very much unmistakable. So my last question, if there's time, uh, is that many people have spoken about BRICS as a rival to the G7, but the UN Security Council has been increasingly sort of a roadblock to building a more just world and having real resolutions to major problems. And I don't think there's a clear path to including more members in the permanent uh, Security Council. So do you see B BRICS eventually becoming an, sort of an alternative to the United Nations as well? And thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for your questions. I don't think that we should really view this situation through the optics uh, that you uh, explained. I don't think that BRICS is an alternative uh, to the United Nations. It's, it's, it may be an alternative to, to G7 maybe uh, because of uh, countries that participate there. But uh, it's really not uh, an uh, alternative to the UN because UN is a core of uh, of multilateral system. Uh, we all support the idea of multilateralism. And I think that UN is a good tool. It's a right tool. It's, it was rightly designed after the Second World War. And the problem is that this tool is not always used properly uh, in accordance with the instructions, in accordance with the UN Charter. So uh, I don't think that uh, it's the, pro the problem is in the UN itself, uh, in the way it was designed. Of course, one can make it better. Uh, there are a lot of uh, efforts to uh, to bring about reform of the General Assembly of the Security Council, and I think that at some point of time these efforts will succeed. But the construction itself is correct, and BRICS is absolutely different thing. It's more about finances and economics. Of course, there is a political component, uh, but it's uh, something in support of United Nations, of true multilateralism, 
BRICS is about true multilateralism, the same uh, core ideas that are behind the United Nations. In the United Nations, the Western countries managed to, to do a lot of harm to multilateralism, but of course they have no influence in BRICS, and that's why BRICS is so attractive for a lot of uh, countries of the world, and a lot of people are re really having uh, high hopes on BRICS uh, because of uh, what BRICS country are, countries are promoting. So I think that we shouldn't confuse these two things, uh, United Nations and BRICS, and we shouldn't put, uh, put them uh, as uh, contradictory, uh, contradictory poles of international politics. Thank you very much. Um, go ahead, just me. Sorry, guys, he's on a desktop and he can't raise his hand, so go ahead. Yeah, very sorry about this, everybody. But, Mr. Ambassador, currently one of the main international points of pressure, at least from what we can read in the press, is for Russia to return to the so-called Black Sea Grain Deal. Um, however, the government of the Russian Federation has stated that it will not return until, first, some promises which were made to Russia are met. Could you tell us what those promises were in the context of the grain deal what and to the extent that you can what discussions are being held on this and what a solution could be thank you for this question i think we quite extensively covered this uh, issue in, uh, in in july uh, i personally delivered several speeches in, in this regard uh, and uh, everybody can uh, get them in, in full detail of what we were saying there were several statements from Russian foreign ministries and even the president of the Russian Federation, Vladimir Putin himself explained uh, what are the problems uh, in the Grain Deal. The problem is, the main problem is that when it was concluded uh, in July 2022, uh, there were two parts of this agreement. One of them was to, the task of one part of Grain Initiative was to bring Ukrainian uh, grain uh, to the countries in need. So it was a humanitarian project. The other part was, uh, the other task was to bring Russian uh, food products, including grain and also fertilizers to world markets. So these were two same elements, uh, two halves of one brain that was promoted by the United Nations. And it was absolutely clear that the equilibrium was achieved because these two uh, parts of the same deal uh, were to be implemented meticulously. But what happened next was that Western countries started to prioritize, uh, to put it mildly, the Ukrainian Grain Initiative. The Ukrainian Grain Initiative, uh, Black Sea Grain Initiative, uh, very, very uh, clearly and very soon, instead of humanitarian one, became a commercial one. And uh, the grain from uh, Ukraine uh, was going to wealthy countries, to European countries, uh, to those countries who were making money because of this grain, but not to the countries in need. So one uh, thing that we demand is to change, uh, we were demanding this when the initiative was still alive, so to change the character of this initiative and to make it humanitarian again. But, uh, well, uh, we, we, everybody knows also that Ukraine was using the humanitarian uh, corridor that was <clears throat> safeguarded because of the implementation of this initiative for military purposes, for attacks on Russian interest, infrastructure, military and civilian objects, which is absolutely contrary to the agreement that was uh, achieved. Uh, we demanded to, to put an end to this uh, repeatedly, but we were not heard. And the second part of this deal about Russian fertilizers and, and food products uh, was not implemented at all. So it required certain uh, considerable moves uh, on behalf of Western countries uh, who formally do not impose sanctions on Russian agriculture and fertilizers. But because of the other measures, uh, the uh, companies who are dealing with this are not capable of uh, implementing uh, the second part of the deal. They are very much afraid of sanctions, of repercussions. The financial uh, transactions can't uh, happen because uh, the Russian Agriculture Bank, which is responsible for this part of uh, our economy, is not capable of making or receiving payments. Uh, and uh, one of the demands was to, uh, to re-swift uh, this uh, bank back to the international system for making these transactions possible. 
there was a questions of rates of uh, of insurance to Russian uh, deliveries. Uh, there was a question of Russian fertilizers, which were kept in um, in some uh, European ports, uh, confiscated, uh, and we were ready to provide these fertilizers free of charge to uh, countries in need in Africa. There were questions of spare parts from for our uh, agricultural machinery, uh, which also became a problem uh, after the introduction of Western sanctions. So all these things were clearly on the paper, uh, not to mention the ammonia pipeline, uh, Taliati Adessa, which was also part of the deal and uh, which uh, Secretary General promised to us that it will be operational, but Ukraine started to blackmail everyone. And uh, you know that uh, I think in June or in, Mar in May, they blew up uh, this uh, pipeline, uh, I think uh, closing this issue uh, at all. So it was absolutely clear that the Western countries, they do not want to implement the Russian part of the deal, uh, but they are keen to, uh, to provide further implementation for Ukrainian part, which was distorted, as I said, it's not, it was no longer humanitarian. And uh, we uh, were demanding uh, to, to put an end to this, uh, and we were also citing figures that Russian agriculture, Russian grain is much more important for world markets. So Ukraine was providing only 5% of world uh, grain, uh, whereas Russia was providing 20%. So even from the point, point of view of uh, mere arithmetic, it's clear that uh, Russian uh, grain is more important uh, for the world than Ukrainian one, not to mention fertilizers uh, from Russia, which is uh, absolutely uh, indispensable to a lot of countries uh, in the world. So all these, in, all these together in combination brought us to this decision, decision to, uh, to quit this uh, deal, because this deal was no longer serving the interests and the principles agreed upon a year ago. And I think that was a clear decision. There was also a clear statement that we would be ready to consider returning to this deal when the conditions that I specified uh, are met. And I think there is nothing extraordinary about this. We're just uh, asking uh, the West uh, to honor its uh, obligations, uh, clear obligations, which were formulated on paper. Uh, I think I have one question, for, uh, time for one more question, and I'm afraid that I need to go after this. Okay. Then I'm going to steal it. So <laughs> <laughs> we talked about the grain deal. Um, so I want to talk about Odessa. So um, what is the future scenario of Russia to Russia if peace is achieved without the reunification of Odessa? Um, and what are the implications for places like the PMR or Abkhazia or uh, Ossetia? Um, don't you believe that Russia needs to extend land bridge to Transnistria and and other breakaway republics will also need to be well, assisted. These are all uh, hypothetical scenarios, and I really don't uh, believe that I am in a position to discuss uh, hypothetics. I'm a diplomat. I have my instructions. I have certain facts that I can analyze. I read a lot of uh, opinions in this regard. Some people say that it is indispensable to move in this direction. The others say that uh, we shouldn't. But uh, there is one thing that I want to make absolutely clear is that uh, we started this special military operation because there was a, a Russophobic uh, hornet's nest created at our borders. Uh, the hornet's nest that is very dangerous for my country and where the clear threat to my country is coming from. Also, we were defending the uh, Russian-speaking population, uh, which faced uh, something close to genocide because of the Ukrainian actions. This was the, the other reason. So well, I'm absolutely sure that the, these aims of special military operation uh, will be implemented uh, sooner or later. I hope that better sooner than later. And I think it's in the core interests of Ukraine because uh, the more Ukraine is dragged into this uh, conflict, uh, the less chances for this country to, to survive as it is uh, are there uh, on the surface. And I would say that it's a pity because whenever, uh, regardless of what some people speculate, whenever put an aim to, to russify Ukraine to end uh, Ukraine as an independent state, to, to impose uh, Russian on Ukrainian speakers, no, we absolutely didn't have these objectives. The objectives are, as I 
just uh, described it. But uh, the more Ukraine is dragged into this conflict, uh, on the, which is uh, happening only because of Western geopolitical interests, I think that uh, the less scenarios, less positive scenarios are there in store for, for this country. And everybody understands this. And I think uh, that this is something that also drives uh, West uh, very mad at this stage because they can't do anything without risking direct uh, clash uh, with, with with Russia. So that's uh, everything I can say in this regard. And I uh, can assure you that we're absolutely confident of our victory, which will come uh, inevitably. And I hope that quite soon. And I thank everybody for support. Uh, I receive a lot of letters, a lot of appeals from uh, United States, from Europe, from other countries, from people who don't have any other opportunities to make their their um, opinion heard. And you know that we also bring into the Security Council some of the journalists, some of the experts who also don't have a platform to express uh, their views and who are sick and tired of mainstream media, which is only brainwashing uh, Americans and Europeans and uh, which do not show any facts and do not bring any truth. So that's what we will be doing. And I think that uh, everybody who is participating in this effort uh, should be thanked because it's very important to to bring the truth uh, to to those in the world who need this truth right now thank you very much i am afraid i need to quit uh, thank your, you so much sir your, for your, your time. room yes but uh, i'm at your disposal thank you we will talk soon okay everyone i am going to close this space and then we will open up an after discussion space if that's what you're all interested in and we can talk about whatever i just don't want to do it in here because it's still recorded and i don't like recording discussion spaces so we'll close this and we'll start a new one um, and we'll, hopefully we will see you guys there mm -hmm.